My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Uh, excited to be with you guys this morning. Excited to open God's Word with you. Uh, we've been uh, studying the book of Ephesians, which is a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church um, in the New Testament. And uh, so we're going to be digging in a little bit more to that. And uh, today we're going to be uh, starting in chapter 2. We kind of went through chapter 1 the past couple weeks. We're already into chapter 2. Just, just booking along, right? Uh, so let me pray, and then uh, we'll dive in, see what God's Word has to say to us this morning, all right? God, thanks for your Word. Uh, thanks most of all for you. <laughs> um, God, we just humbly ask you just that you would keep showing us more of who you are and more of what you're like. And um, gosh, I just really humbly pray that you would fill me with your Spirit so that I, that could happen through me this morning. So trust that uh, you want those things to happen, and so we'll look forward to that. In your good name, amen. Amen. Um, so uh, my wife Hannah and I, we have two kids, um, and uh, they're just, they're objectively adorable, right? They're not, I just don't think they're cute. Like, they are legitimately adorable children, right? Um, and uh, we love them. They are like a great treasure to us. We are so incredibly thankful for them. But uh, for a while, we weren't sure if we were ever going to be able to have kids. Um, we had been trying to get pregnant for quite a while, and uh, it, just, it just wasn't happening, um, and I felt like we went through like the phases of like excitement, then uh, frustration, then anticipation, then like just kind of like waiting and trying to be patient about it, and then like concerned, and then like just like really anxious about what like is this something that is ever going to happen? And so each month would pass and still nothing, and uh, it really it really sucked. Um, I remember asking a friend whose uh, wife had just recent, recently gotten pregnant, and I said, how long had you guys been trying for? He was like, a day. We tried a day, and then we got pregnant. <laughs> and like, he was glad that they were pregnant, but like, I don't think it was like that big a deal to him. He's like, well, you know, science and whatnot, it's just kind of how it works, right? Um, and, uh, and so like, I was, just, I was just kind of surprised by that, because we had been trying for so long, and it just didn't seem like it was like as exciting as it was. So um, I still remember the morning that we found out that we were pregnant. I was in the shower, shampoo in my hair, um, and I see an arm shoot through the shower curtain, right? And then followed quickly by my wife's like schmirk kind of like creeping in past the shower curtain, right? And I don't have my glasses on, and I like there's soap in my eyes, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, right? And uh, it, was, it was her trying to show me her pregnancy test, um, that, that, she, that we were finally pregnant. Uh, I made her take like two or three more just to be sure, right? Um, but man, I, I cannot tell you like how excited we were when, when that happened. Um, there was a lot of months of really bad news, and that made the good news like exponentially more valuable. See, the, the thing that is really important to understand is that, like, good news is only good if there's bad news, right? <laughs> good news is only good if there's bad news. And that's the message that the Apostle Paul uh, has for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, he's going to lay out for us some really, really bad news. <laughs> um, and trust me, like, it's bad. Like, it's not just like, eh, well, we'll see. Like, it is it's really bad news. <laughs> And then he's going to use the all-important phrase, but God, and he's going to lay out the really good news. 
And my heart for us this morning as we study is that like the weight of the bad news will make the weight of the good news like exponentially more valuable to us. So uh, let's dive in, see what God's word has to say for us this morning, and, and uh, hopefully uh, the good news will be incredibly good to you in light of the bad news. So let's read. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Paul, writing here to the Ephesian church, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. For all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the bad news part, right? Dead, slaves, wrath, not good, right? Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we got to take a look at the bad news in order for the good news to matter. So uh, let's Let's dig in. Before, before we really dive into that, though, it's, it's really important that we understand. Before we look at like, the devastating nature of the bad news in the passage, um, it's really important we understand that this is true of everyone. Like, it's not just like some especially terrible people who like, have really like, messed up lives, who are like, murdering people and running around doing scary things. Like, the passage is describing everyone, right? All humankind, you and me, we are included in the everyone, right? So like the, the message here, the bad news is for everyone, right? In verses 1 through 3, Paul lays out the tragic truths about the, about the dire state of all men and women here without God. Verse 1, it says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Obviously, that doesn't mean physically dead, right? You're like wandering around, eating pizza, like you're not actually dead, right? But it's a spiritually dead, right? It's not a metaphor, right? It's not like somebody saying, you're dead to me. Like, it's not a metaphor like that. It is a factual statement about the spiritual condition of every human's heart. It's not mostly dead, right? It's like... It's not a princess bride situation, right? Like, it's not mostly dead. It's all the way dead. There's, not, there's no life, right? Just go through their clothes, look for the change. There's nothing else you can do, okay? Like, totally spiritually dead. John Stott says this about the deadness that the passage speaks of. He said, it is a spiritual deadness, which means to be blind to the glory of Jesus, to be deaf 
to the voice of the Spirit of God, having no love for God, having no sensitivity or awareness of his person, not leaping for him and crying, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people, we were as unresponsive to God as a corpse. So we're dead, and it says the reason that we're dead is because of our sins and trespasses. And you might be asking, like, doesn't that, isn't that kind of just like the same thing? Like, that's the same word, right? Just kind of said and over again. Well, like, yes and no, right? Um, there's actually two uh, Greek words here, and they kind of paint a fuller picture of what's going on. A, a trespass is one of the Greek words, um, and it refers to a false step, right? So it's involving either crossing a, a known boundary or deviating from the right path, right? So it's like intentionally doing something wrong, right? And the Greek word that is translated sin, it means uh, a missing the mark. It's a falling short of a standard, right? And so together, these two words are describing not just the bad things we do, but are describing as well the fact that we don't do the good things we're supposed to. The theological word is called sins of omission and commission, right? We do the things we're not supposed to, and we don't do the things we are supposed to do. So we're not just rebels, we're also failures, right? Like the situation Paul is laying out is like absolutely dead, in no way pursuing God, and we're dead not just because we ran the wrong way, but because we didn't even get close to reaching God if we were trying to run towards him. And you might be saying, like, well, it kind of sounds like you have to be alive to, like, disobey God, to, like, run from him, to reject him. Uh, One pastor clarifies it this way. He says, to be alive to disobedience is to be dead to obedience. To be alive in rebellion is to be dead to submission. In being alive to unbelief, we are dead to faith. We had no living spiritual nature to incline us to do anything for the glory of God and in reliance on his power and lacking that spiritual nature, we were dead, dead to righteousness, dead to holiness, dead to obedience, dead to faith, like completely, totally dead. It keeps going though, right? (laughs) We're not just dead, right? The passage goes on in verses two and three. Right? It says that those the sins and transgressions that caused our death, that that wasn't just like a one time, like, hey, you made a mistake, like, well, you know, like, too bad, you know, you ruined it. No, the passage refers to like, we're like walking in a pattern of that. That's what we wanted, it's what we longed for, we just kept doing it, right? When you were walking in the ways of this word, when you followed, right? And what's going on here, the passage is not described, it's describing an enslavement, a captivity to that stuff. The language used is not not of forced coercion, it's not of like a sneaky deception, rather it's like very clearly a free-willed choice. It's a headlong pursuit, it is a like headfirst dive in. Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 says it like this, that God gave us over to our sinful desires. The passage uses it, the, the desires of our flesh, right? So just first, there's nothing wrong with like normal bodily desires like you need food and you need to sleep and sex is a thing that's important for humankind, right? But what happens is 
like God made us. He knows that we need those things, right? But what happens is, is our appetite for food becomes gluttony and drunkenness. And our need for sleep becomes just pure laziness. And our longing for sex becomes like an unbridled lust of our hearts. See, these desires were good things given to us as good gifts from God. In fact, the Psalms talks about how God gave wine so that it would gladden the heart of man, right? God designed sex, God designed food and how things would taste as good gifts to people, right? Like those are all, all things he created and he made that we, would, that we might enjoy them. But what happens is instead of worshiping the one who gave us all of the good gifts, we just started worshiping the stuff itself. Romans 1 says that we worship the gifts, we worship the creation rather than the creator. We all pursued all the things we thought would give us life. Instead of giving life, they actually became a prison. We unwittingly enslaved ourselves to our own desires. It's important as well, like, we didn't just enslave ourselves to bad behavior, right? It's not just like an external kind of thing, like, okay, well, I'll just like stop getting drunk or I'll just stop doing whatever and then we'll be cool. Like, it says it's, you pursued the desires of your flesh and of your mind, right? See, the passions of the flesh include not just our wrong desires, but our wrong desires of our heart and of our mind. It's pride and self-sufficiency. It's arrogance and selfishness. These are a lot easy, to, much easier to dress up and make look presentable, right? As like ambition or like, um, like you're proud of your work or, or lots of other things. But in the end, uh, one commentator says it this way, however respectable the guise or disguise is, our ingrained self-centeredness is a terrible bondage. Not only are the desires of our flesh what keeps us up captives, but listed as well are two other things. First, Paul describes that we are enslaved to the course of this world. It brings together uh, two concepts, that phrase brings together two ideas that basically present a picture of a, a society or a system which is set up totally alien to God. It's a world that affirms our worship of the gifts right? It's a world that affirms our desire. Just pursue whatever you want. Work hard. Get whatever you need to get. Have as much sex as you want. Drink as much as you want. Eat as much as you want. Do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, pursue it. Go for it. Secondly, says we're captive as well to the devil. He's referred here as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The word air here could also be uh, translated like a foggy atmosphere, right? Which uh, indicates, I think, in some ways the, the darkness that the devil prefers rather than the light. And what happens is, is that he just keeps feeding us lies that like maybe this time the desires of our flesh will satisfy the way we want them to. Even though they've never done so before, maybe this time it really will. John Stott sums it up, I think, best this way. He says, before Christ set us free, we were subject to oppressive influences from both inside and out. Outside was the world, inside was our flesh, and beyond both, actively working through both, was the evil spirit, the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, who is holding us in captivity. 
So we are dead, we are captive, and lastly in verse 3 it says we are condemned. We were by nature deserving of wrath, deserving of just punishment for our mutinous rebellion. Like Aaron was talking about, what's at root in the sinfulness of our hearts is not just bad behavior, it's a heart that says, screw you God, I'm going to be God. I'm going to be the one that rules my life and sets my course and sets my direction. That's a rebellion. That's a mutiny. That's saying, I'm going to be God. God, I'm dethroning you. People don't often like to talk about God's wrath unless it's like a crazy person on TV with a lot of really bad computer-generated fire graphics, you know, and like sometimes a dragon that like swoops around and like, they're just weird, right? Let's just be honest, okay? But I think it's important for us to like have a right understanding of God's wrath, right? Um, God's wrath is, it's, It's not like man's wrath, right? It's not a bad temper. He's not just flying off the handle. It's not spite. It's not hatred. It's not animosity. It's definitely not revenge. It's not arbitrary because it's always directed at one thing. It's not subject to mood or whim. It's not a bad attitude that God has. So what is God's wrath then, right? Because that seems like a pretty good description of, the, of the, the wrath we see in people all the time. God's wrath is this. It is a personal, righteous, constant hostility towards evil. It is his settled refusal to not compromise with it, to not tolerate it, to not just let it be. God's wrath is, is his constant hostility towards evil and his resolve to condemn it and get rid of it. I think God's wrath is often viewed really negatively. Um, I think that's mostly because we see ourselves at the end of his wrath sometimes. We like picture ourselves at the place of that. One uh, commentator says this. He says, I think we need to be more grateful for God's wrath and to worship him that because of his righteousness, is perfect. He always reacts to evil in the same unchanging, predictable, and uncompromising way. Without his moral constancy, we would enjoy no peace. See, God's, God's wrath is, is really good news because where God's wrath is there, there is justice. Like all of us have been sinned against, some of us far greater than others. And if there was no wrath towards sin on God's account, if, if he was not opposed to evil, then the evil that's been done to you or been done to others, has no. there's no justice for that then. But because God is wrath and he is righteous and he is consistent, there is always a penalty for sin. There will always be justice for sin. Either the perpetrator will receive that or Jesus will take it on. Those are the two options. And like, just as a reminder, like, all of us have sinned against other people, right? <laughs> Maybe in different kinds of ways, but all of us have done evil to others, right? We're not innocent bystanders. I remember uh, when I lived in La Crosse, uh, I had a friend named Matt. 
Uh, we became just really good friends. He lived right next door to Hannah and I, and he had gotten in a really bad motorcycle accident or car accident, and and so uh, he just like was really not able to do a lot. And so we would just have him over a bunch for dinner and meals and and just to hang out and and uh, just try to just befriend him and just like get to know him because like he was in a rough spot. And um, over the couple of years that we lived in the cross, Matt became really good friends of ours, and we got to have a lot of spiritual conversations with Matt. And I remember. Um, pretty close to when we were about to leave uh, our time on the cross and move somewhere else, um, I remember having a conversation. We had had lots of spiritual conversations. I remember having a conversation with Matt, and he said, um, I, I cannot believe in a God who would condemn me for not believing in Jesus. And um, I didn't know what to do with that at the time. <laughs> like I, I didn't know how to respond to that. And I've spent a, a lot, a lot of nights thinking about like what I wish I would have said or could have said. I think what it boils down to is that um, Matt stands condemned. We, we all do. I do. He does. Every one of us. Jesus is our rescuer. He's not our judge. <laughs> Denying Jesus is like being hopelessly stranded on a desert island, and when the rescue boat comes, you say, no, you're judging me for needing to be rescued. So no, I'm not going to accept your help. It's like denying that you need rescuing. The bad news is pretty bad. Like dead, enslaved, and condemned. That's who the Bible says we are without God. Like that is not a good picture. Like I just want you to like sense the weight of that for a minute. Because, like, the good news is going to be really good if that matters to you, if the bad news is really weighty. Verse 4, right? It goes on, it says, but God. Like, rarely are there better words in the entire Bible than but God. But by his grace, rich in mercy, he made you alive in Christ Jesus. It's by grace that you have been saved. Did you notice when we read the passage, all of the things in the bad news were were statements. They were past tense statements. You used to, when you walked, when you were this. They're all past tense statements because the good news is that for those who have put their faith in Jesus, trusted him as their savior and submitted to him as their Lord, the bad news is no longer bad. Is that true of them anymore? They're no longer dead. They're no longer slaves. They're no longer condemned. See, God addressed every one of the things that were about our judgment. In verse 1, it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but in verses 5 and 6, it says that we're alive to Christ. See, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. We have life in place of death. That's the power of God. In verses 2 and 3, it says, describes our enslavement to our sin and our own desires. In verses 6, it says, God freed us up. And not he just freed us, he set us to sit with Christ. So we, we were enslaved to the spirit of age, but God has set us free from that dungeon and instead placed us in the throne room with Christ, seated next to him in heaven. In verse 3, it says, we were deserving of wrath. But in verse 7 it says that God promises to spend eternity showing us his kindness to us, his grace made known in Jesus. 
See, we were children of wrath, but God promises to show us endless kindness. We have, we have kindness in place of wrath. You see, we were once dead in our sins, but God made us alive. We were once uh, captive by Satan, but now God has made us free. And once we were children of wrath, but God promises to spend eternity showing us the riches of his grace and his kindness in Jesus. But God, man, those are some really good words. <laughs> it's really important that you note here like, none of the things here involve your actions. It's not something you did. It's not something you could do. Notice, God is the only one who's acting in the passage. You didn't, like, wriggle on the spiritual table, and God was like, oh, we got a live one. Maybe we can do something with that, right? Like, that's not what's going on. Like, the ESV renders verse 4 this way. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. The pastor is saying God decided to direct his life-giving love at us. That's what causes us to come alive. There's nothing else. God chooses to direct his love at us, therefore we come alive. It's really important as well, like, that didn't happen on your best day, right? It didn't happen on the day you're like, man, I totally was, like, awesome today, like, I talked to seven people about Jesus and like I did everything that was right. I went to church three times today. Like everything was amazing. My life was on point. I was like super kind and super generous and like just nailed it today. Like the passage says that like when you were dead in your rebellion, that's when God directed his love at you. Not when you were trying to clean yourself up. Not when you were trying to pursue him. When you were running the opposite way and giving him the finger, that's when God decided to get, direct his love at you. Ezekiel uh, 36 talks about it this way. God here is writing to his people, the Israelites, and he's giving them a promise. And he says, one day I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out the heart of stone that's in you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to replace it with one that wants to love me, that wants to follow me, that wants to like obey and come after me. I'm going to give you a new heart. You can't do it on your own. I'll do it for you. I think God does that so that he'll get all the praise, right? So that he would be the one from the beginning to the end who is responsible for dead becoming life. So far, Paul has described salvation in the terms of resurrection from the dead, in liberation from slavery, and in a rescue from condemnation. Each one of those things declares God's work because dead people cannot make themselves alive and slaves cannot set themselves free and those who are condemned cannot become innocent on their own. So what do we do with that, right? So how do we respond to the news that's there? Like the bad news and the good news, what do we do with it? I think the, th the first thing that we got to do is like to acknowledge or remember our sin. To like sit in it, to like sense the weight of it. Uh, Christians, I think, are sometimes like kind of known for being like a little obnoxious and like talking about sin and being obnoxious along those lines. And I think mostly the reason that that is is because they just talk about like bad behaviors and bad practices and whatever it is. 
without getting to the but God, right? But God's grace, but his mercy, but his love freely poured out for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, really models this well throughout the Bible for us. In, if you look at the way that he wrote his letters, kind of chronologically, right, over time, Paul says, I was the least of all the pastors. I was the worst pastor there was. A couple of years later, he says, I was like the worst of all of the Christians. Like, and then at the end of his life, he says, I was like the worst human of all time, right? And you might be thinking to yourself, Paul, like, okay, like a little depressing. Like, can we just like tone it? Like, just let's not go off the cliff here, right? But Paul is not depressed, right? He's not like dejected. He's not like, Woe is me, there is no hope. Because every time he says, I was the worst of all these, it's always followed by this phrase, but God's grace towards me was enough. See, what's happening over Paul's life is that he is realizing the weight of his sin and how far he's run from God and how desperately he needed God. And like he's like sensing like how much his need for God, like that's increasing. His awareness of his need for God over time is increasing. What's also increasing is his love for God. <laughs> Ever increasingly, Paul is understanding how much he needed God, and he's also understanding how much God met that need. And so, like, the weight of that is just becoming, like, increasingly good news to the Apostle Paul. See, what happens is, is that when we understand like the weight of our need for God and also like the magnitude of Jesus meeting that need, then like that results in like humbleness and gratitude towards God and towards people, right? Because what happens, like the most obnoxious Christians, like let's just be honest, right? The most obnoxious Christians are people that compare their actions to the actions of others, right? Like, oh, I'm better than you because I didn't do X, Y, and Z, or I don't think X, Y, and whatever, right? We were talking in prep for this, and Aaron uh, like showed this really great analogy, right? A body that's been dead for one day doesn't really look that bad. It kind of just looks like a body that's sleeping, right? A body that's been dead for a month in the woods, like, that looks pretty gnarly, right? <laughs> they're both dead, though. Like, they're equally dead. You can't bring back a dead body after one day. You can't bring it back after 30. It doesn't matter. They're both dead. So who cares what they look like on the outside? What's caused their death is the heart inside. See, you and I are just as dead as the most evil person you could possibly think of. We didn't earn the grace we've received in Jesus. Get off your high horse. We have nothing that we merit God's grace with. God directed, it says, God chose to direct his love at us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. So I think we need to acknowledge our sin and we need to remember it, right? Not get depressed about it, but remember how much we needed God. I think we too, we need to acknowledge and remember our need for Jesus. I think what happens most of the time is that when we hear the bad news, like human nature is to fix stuff, right? A lot of you guys are engineers, like your job is to fix stuff, right? Get calls in the day, like, hey, this thing is broken, fix it, right? Like any of you are husbands, you've got that call as well, right? There's a thing, it's dangling, some blood is coming out of somewhere, come fix this, right? Like 
deep inside every human, like that's like we want to fix stuff. Like you see something broken, you want to fix it. Whether that's like a pipe or a system or a structure, whether that's a government, like you see anything wrong, it's like in, it's, we want to fix it. And I think what happens for us is a lot of times we hear the bad news and we just want to fix it ourselves. And so we try to obey more and clean our lives up and stop doing things we think are wrong and start doing things that we think are right or try to give more money or be more generous with our time or be more patient or less angry. We try to like, like clean up the outside. Jesus here, these are Jesus' words, right? He's talking in Matthew chapter 23 to people who are trying to do the exact same thing. They're trying to clean their lives up on the outside. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and sin. Jesus gives a sober warning here. You can have your life squeaky and clean on the outside and you will still be dead on the inside. You've been to funerals, right? The body in the casket, it looks nice. It looks presentable. It looks clean. It's still dead. We need a Savior not just to cap off our good deeds, but we need a Savior to recreate our hearts. We are spiritually dead and helpless without Him, no matter how good we look on the outside. You don't need new clothes. You need a new heart. Just, I just like want to reiterate that. Like, like we all try to do that. Like all of us are like, we forget that Jesus is the one who cleans us up, that he's the one who restores us. And we are like constantly trying to like fix up our lives instead of rest on his grace and his cleaning us up. Like, I just, I want to remind you, like, that's not, like, you're not helping. Like, that's rebellion. That's you saying, God, I don't need you. I will do it myself. Like, that's not just, like, you giving it your good college try and, like, ah, it didn't work out. Like, that is you telling God, I don't need you. I will do it myself. That's sin. That's rebellion. Stop trying to clean yourself up. That, like, I need to hear that as well, right? We cannot clean ourselves up, and when we try, we are rejecting God when we do it. Because what needs to happen is we need to acknowledge our sin and remember it. We need to acknowledge our need for a Savior and remember that. And we need to put our faith in Jesus. See, turning from sin and repentance, it does no good unless you put your faith in something that actually gives life. Otherwise, another lie is just going to creep in and like steal that place again. The pastor says, it's by faith in Jesus that we obtain the inheritance we have as God's people. It's grace. You see, God's grace is free and undeserved mercy towards us and it's faith and humble trust in him by which we receive that mercy that is offered freely towards us. Faith is by which we grab out and we take hold of it so that nobody can boast because you didn't earn it and you haven't merited it. It's by faith in the work of another that you receive that life. I would just say, like, some of you are still dead. Come alive. Some of you are alive and you still live like you're dead. Wake up. 
Lastly, how do we respond, right? We remember our sin. We remember our needs for your Savior. We put our faith in Jesus. And lastly, we live for him. Verses 7 through 10, why did God save us, right? Was it just out of sheer mercy? Was it just he loved us? Was it just his kindness? No, it's more than that. In verse 7, it says it like this. He saved us that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace. It's about him. Our lives are about him. Because we were dead and we should have stayed that way, but we were made alive. One commentator says this. I just thought that was so helpful. He said, In raising and exalting Christ, God demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. Right? So in raising Christ, God demonstrated his great power. In raising and exalting us, he displayed the immeasurable greatness of his grace. It's through us, God's people, who he's saved. Like, that's how he shows the universe what he's like. That's how he proves to everyone who he is and what he's done and all that he's about. In verse 10, it says this, we are God's workmanship. The Greek word here means like his work of art, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. We are God's masterpiece. He's made us entirely new, began from new. And he's made us for a new purpose, it says, right? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The ESV renders it this way. It says, to very good works that we would walk in them. And so we come full circle, right? You were dead because you were walking in the patterns of sin. And you were pursuing them and you were walking in them. And it, verse 3, but God made you alive, and it ends in verse 10, you're created for something new, that you would walk in line with God and in line with his purposes. And so you were walking in rebellion from him, but God gave you new life so that you might walk in line with him. The contrast is complete. It is a contrast between two lifestyles, evil and good, between two masters, between Satan and God, What could possibly have affected such a change? Just this, King Jesus. So, like, we know what we're supposed to do, right? We know what we're supposed to respond to that message. The question is how, right? Like, there's a lot of mornings you wake up and you're just trying to clean yourself up. Well, there's a lot of mornings you wake up and like the weight of the bad news like feels like it's on you, right? One pastor says it this way, we have to cherish or we will perish. If we do not cherish Jesus as our Savior, then we show that we don't know him as our Lord. If you do not feel the need for Jesus as your Savior, you'll never cherish him. Like, if you don't remember how much you needed him, he won't matter to you. That's why we got to remember the bad news, right, as Christians? Because it's a reminder for how much we needed God, and it's a reminder of how greatly he met that need. What we treasure most, we should also proclaim, no matter the cost. I treasure my wife. I talk about her often with others. I love my kids. I tell stories about them to anyone who will listen. 
I treasure Jesus most of all. I cannot help but tell you about him. If you call yourself a Christian and you can keep Jesus to yourself, if it's possible for you to keep him to yourself, then you have no idea who he is. Matthew 13 says this. It's talking about someone who has found Jesus, who's found the kingdom of God. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When the man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold everything he had so he could buy the one field. The only way we treasure Jesus is if we know how much he gave for us. And it's our cherishing of him, it's our treasuring of him that will empower us to move past like guilt and shame and to move into like a gratefulness and a humble gratitude for all that Jesus did for us. And so we respond to him like not out of like duty and obligation but out of love. Because we were dead and hopeless and helpless and Jesus made us alive. And we didn't earn it and we didn't merit it and there's nothing that we could do to mess it up. He gave it so freely. The way that we respond rightly is that we have to cherish and treasure Jesus. Otherwise, we'll just perish, right? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for you. God, I just like, I know like this morning it's been like a little heavy. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's right, I guess. Because the bad news is like really bad. It sucks a lot. But the good news is such incredibly good news in light of it. King Jesus, I just long that you would fill us with your spirit so that like we might respond to you rightly. That we would like remember our sin and remember how greatly you met our need that we would recognize how much we needed you and how greatly you met that need for you. God, I pray as well that you would cause us to continually put our faith in you instead of looking to something else. God, and empower us with your spirit that we might actually live for you. Help us to cherish and treasure you, King Jesus, more than we do anything else. Might that result in lives that are full of gratitude and humility, that are full of grace extended towards others because we know how much grace has been extended towards, towards us. And so we love you, God, not because like we earned that and not because we should, but because you loved us first. And so we want to respond in song and in worship and in music, but more than that, Jesus, we want to give our lives back to you. God, so cause us to treasure you rightly so that we couldn't help keep up, but like proclaim you to the world around us because you're such good news. Pray these things in your good name, God. Amen.